Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. This morning, we're beginning a new series of messages leading up to the Easter time, Good Friday and Easter, and they're based on the questions that Jesus asks. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up and first became a Christian, I saw bumper stickers and church signs and billboards and things like this that said, Christ is the answer or Jesus is the answer. I remember an Andre Crouch song when I was growing up that said, Jesus is the answer for the world today. And, and that was a, a common sentiment and statement. You even see that today. People would say, Jesus is the answer. And I think what we need to do, though, is just ask, what do we mean by that? What are we saying when we say that Jesus is the answer? Uh, some people think that Jesus is like the answer man, that if you just come to Jesus, you'll figure out how to handle your finances and your marriage will get fixed and all these difficult relationships that you have, those problems will go away. And the big questions that you have about, you know, where will I go after I die? Will I go to heaven or can I escape hell? That, that'll get answered if you just come to Jesus. And it's easy to treat Jesus as just kind of like the cosmic divine answer man. And I think what's interesting is that as we read in scripture, we see Jesus very seldom answers questions, but he asks a lot of questions. In fact, someone took uh, their time, and I don't really know how they did this, but they counted up to over 339 questions that Jesus asked in the four Gospels. And that compares to about 180 some questions that people asked him, and about eight questions that Jesus answered when they were asked to him. And you might be thinking, well, why didn't he answer more questions if he's the answer? I sometimes wonder if the writers of the Gospels are trying to say something different about Jesus, that he's not the answer, that he's actually the question. We have these assumptions. We think we know who Jesus really is. We think we know what he's doing. And they're somewhat shallow and they're somewhat ill-informed. And we think that we know who Jesus is and what he's doing and what his plan is for us. But really what Jesus is trying to do by his asking questions, so many of them, is simply to get us to stop and think, do we really know him? Do we really understand him? Do we really see what his plan and program is for our lives? Because it's bigger, better, more awesome than we've ever imagined. It's deeper, richer, fuller than we've ever comprehended. In a sense, Jesus is the question, the question that's supposed to keep us up at night and think about what's really going on in my life and my relationship with God through Jesus. He's the question. 
And so what I'm hoping to do over the next several weeks is just look at some of these key questions that Jesus asked. And we're not going to cover all 139, uh, 339, but we are going to pick out seven or eight of them and, and look at them more carefully because they're, they're questions that often are repeated in different situations. And as we're looking at these questions, we're examining and exploring what is it that Jesus wants us to see about himself. As we ask these questions of ourselves, as we hear Jesus ask his disciples and ask the crowds and ask other people, even ask God the Father, as he asks these questions, he's trying to draw us in. He's trying to get us to be provoked in our thoughts. He's trying to challenge our thinking and our assumptions so that we would really see who he is and what he's doing, to really question whether or not we understand him. And are we truly trusting him? And he's not asking the questions to stump us and gotcha like that. He's not trying to do that. He's just trying to say, do you really understand me? And are you really trusting in me? Have you given me the place, first place in your life or not? I'm the question that you need to spend your whole life trying to answer. What will you do with me? What place will you give me in your life? And so Jesus is asking these questions, and these questions are, are to attract our attention, they're to provoke thought, they're, in, they're calling us to engage with Him in a deeper relationship. And so as we look at these questions, they're not just part of a narrative and a dialogue, they're, they're something that are, that's to cause us to pause and ponder who Jesus really is, and do we really know Him and trust Him because He's bigger, richer, fuller than you and I have ever imagined or dreamed that He could possibly be. One of the questions that we're going to look at is what we're examining today, and it's found in Mark chapter 4 at the end of this chapter. It's Mark chapter 4, verse 35, and it's a question about fear. The question about fear, and I kind of think this is sort of timely for us, uh, to consider because there's a lot to be afraid of in our world. And even if you are not watching the news and you're oblivious and you laugh and scoff at all the stuff that the media talks about and social media repeats and your friends are worried about, ah, oh, you got nothing to be worried about like that. Even if that's your attitude deep down inside, there are anxieties and worries and fear that deeply trouble you. And often Jesus is dealing with the issue of fear in his ministry. Why are you worried about your clothing? Why are you worried about what you eat? He says in the Sermon Amount. Seek God first and he'll provide for you. And other times he's with his disciples, like this time that we're going to explore. And he asks them, why are you afraid? And he's asking this not just to Peter and John and James and the rest of the disciples in a boat. He's asking this to you and me in the storms of life that you and I are going through. And if you're saying, I'm not going through any storms. I don't live in Nashville where they had tornadoes this week and 25 plus people were killed. No, no, no we're blessed. We had relatively decent weather this week in our, our area. I think the sun shines a testimony of that. But a lot of us today, no, I don't want to shake your hands. <laughs> Thank you. Why? Because we're frightened by this coronavirus, COVID-19. 
We're wondering what, what is going on and who has it and they don't realize they have it. I found myself washing my hands and I think the skin's worn off. I really do. And maybe you've been doing that too. Someone said to me Friday night, I thought we were supposed to be washing our hands all the time anyway. Why are we all of a sudden worried about doing it now? Because we recognize that the virus could be anywhere. It could be on a doorknob, a counter at the store, someone's hand when they shake yours. Uh, when they've coughed and you just walk through it as you walk down the aisle on a bus or at, at, at school, in your classroom, wherever it might be. We're frightened by this. We don't understand it. And so we want to quarantine. We are looking for a vaccine. We're, we're concerned about where we've been and who we've been with. Um, when we were traveling in Israel a week and a half ago, uh, friends of ours who, who were with another, true, uh, another tour group, they, they uh, wrote back home on, on Facebook and said, oh, coronavirus showed up in Israel. Oh my gosh, the whole place is... And, and it was like we didn't even realize it and we didn't know it and the people had already left. And Okay, but it is there. You have to be concerned about it. The coronavirus is so scary that the stock market is scared of it. Have you noticed that? That's scary. Uh, we're scared about the election, many of us are. Who will get elected? Who will get voted? I had a, a, a person tell me yesterday they were scared of two of the candidates. And uh, they were very frightened by them. And probably would never vote for them, but they're very scared of them. Uh, maybe you're scared of, of that doctor's appointment and tests that you've got later this month. Maybe you're scared about choices that your children are making. Maybe you're scared about something you've committed to doing. You know, you're going on that missions trip this summer. Or you're involved in doing something that's outside your comfort zone and how will you do it? You've got to take that plane flight or that road trip or you've got that family meeting to discuss something about your parents and you're concerned about working with your siblings. There's lots of things to be frightened about. Lots of things to be scared of. And the thing is, is that Jesus asks the question in this story, he says, why are you scared? Why are you afraid? And the story of the storm and the little boat and the frightened men who are in it is a metaphor, it's an example, an illustration to us of what do we do when we're in life's storms, whatever those storms are. By the way, I did hear this on Babylon B, so you know it can be trusted, right? I heard that if you took Chick-fil-A sauce and put it on the doorpost and the lintel of your house, the coronavirus angel will pass over you. So I'm just letting you know that's, I think, is probably something safe to do. you could be like those Muslim guys at the holy site in Iran and lick the doorpost. You could do that too. Not a sign of faith, a sign of stupidity. Okay. In Mark chapter 4, verse 35, this is the familiar story of Jesus and disciples in the boat crossing the sea. The thing that's interesting is that in chapter 4, it starts out, verse 1, that Jesus is teaching along the Sea of Galilee, and he's teaching the disciples, and he's teaching the crowds about the kingdom of God. And in fact, in this chapter, there are four stories that Jesus tells about people planting seeds and things growing, types of seeds and their growth. 
And what he's trying to say is the kingdom of God is like a seed that gets planted in the ground. How will you respond to it? Will you be one of the kinds of soils? Will you be receptive to it? Or will your heart be hardened? Or will you be distracted? Or will you be so bitter or so distracted that the seed of the kingdom of God can't produce any fruit in your life? Will you allow it to grow in your life or not? Will you even see that the kingdom is like a little tiny, tiny, tiny mustard seed? Something that seems so small and insignificant in our world. And yet when it, plants, it gets planted, it grows into something big and huge. Can you see that the kingdom of God is coming and that it's growing and that it requires our faith and trust to receive it so that the kingdom of God will grow in our life and grow in our families and grow in our communities as we trust the Lord? Now the thing is, is after a long day of teaching, and really what we have in chapter four is probably just a summary, probably just snippets of the teaching that Jesus did that day. I imagine that there were different sermons at different times, and then there would be a break and he would talk with his disciples about what he was just explaining. Maybe they grabbed a little bit of lunch and then there would be another teaching session and they would keep going. And finally you get down to verse 35 and it says, on that day when evening had come, he, Jesus, said to them, let us go across to the other side. They're on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee, which is a large lake in northern Israel. It's surrounded by a set of mountains. It's like a bowl, like a basin. It's about 700 feet, the surface of the lake below the, the Sea of Galilee, uh, rather below the uh, sea level. And, and he says, we're, in, we're here on this side. Let's get a break from the crowds. He's been sitting in a boat teaching there. Let's sail across to the other side, probably just for a break but maybe even just to be over there and to do a little evangelistic work on that side among some of the Gentile people. But let's, let's sail across to the other side. And it says in verse 36, after leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. In other words, he just stayed in the boat and they, they set off from the shore and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so the boat was already filling. Now I want to show you two pictures here from the trip that Don and I took to, to Israel. Just go ahead and show the next one. We visited a, a, a site where they had found back in 1986 a boat from the first century that was in a bunch of mud and silt and there was a time of drought and the, the level of the Sea of Galilee had gone down far enough and some guys were walking along the shore there and in the mud and they kept finding these nails in the mud and they were trying to think, where did these nails come from? And they kept looking at the nails and they began to recognize and realize that the design of the nails and how they were made indicated they were very old. And they began digging around in the mud and the soot and the silt, and they, they, be, they discovered wood and nails in the wood. And they began digging away some more. And they realized that they were seeing the keel and wooden ribs of a boat. And so if you'd show the next slide, they were able to pull out of the, the mud. And uh, it's actually a fascinating story how they preserved it without it falling apart. But it had been encased in this mud, airtight, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And they, they covered it with uh, that styrofoam spray stuff 
like you use when you're doing insulating around a window and a crack in the wall. And they encased it that way and they sailed it down the lake a couple hundred yards and then they built a pavilion around it and they were able to fully restore it. And we could go and actually look at it. And so Dawn standing there <clears throat> gives you a perspective about the size of the boat. But if you go back to the slide before, this shows us what the boat would have looked like when it was fully constructed with its sail and with the oars on the side as well. And so this was, a, this was a typical fishing boat from that time. And you can imagine the 12 disciples and Jesus being in there and, and they're, they're rowing across the lake and maybe they even have their sail up and they're trying to get to the other side. The, the sides of the boat are only about four feet high. And so it's, it's not a huge boat. We were sailing on a boat on the Sea of Galilee, something that was much larger. It, it had 50 of us people sitting in it. And, and there could have been another t- room for another 20 more or so. And the thing is, is that it says in this story, in this account, that the great windstorm arose. And this is terminology that they use in other places in the New Testament for a hurricane for a violent, violent windstorm. Not just a gentle breeze, but something that's so violent that it's actually causing great waves. There are signs along the coast of the Sea of Galilee that tell people to be careful if they park on the beach or they park near the beach because sudden storms can come up and their cars can get swamped and flooded. Parking there. And so this is just a a reminder that this is very violent, very dangerous, the storm that these men encounter with Jesus. And says that the wind, the waves and the wind were actually beating against the boat, just kind of smashing up against it, just pounding down upon the boat. And the boat is, the waves and the water are filling up the boat and it's threatening to sink. It's just full of water. And there they are. You've got probably some of the guys who maybe don't know how to handle the oars. They're, they're trying to splash the water back out and keep the boat afloat. And others are straining against the oars and others are pulling the sail. And somebody else, maybe it's Peter back there on, one of the, on the rudder just trying to steer. And you know what Jesus is doing in all of this, it says? He's sleeping. Look at the next verse. This great windstorm arose, the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern, in the back of the boat, asleep on a cushion. There's the first big question. How does Jesus sleep through a storm? We'll come back to that one. But there he is in the back of the boat. He's asleep on a cushion. Now, maybe it was a pillow. Maybe it was something to sit on. Maybe it was a pile of robes or ropes. Some people even think it was maybe a sandbag for ballast. But whatever it is, Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. And everybody else is panicking and struggling and working to keep the boat afloat because the storm is overwhelming it. It says they awoke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Listen, when I tell you that Jesus asked more questions 
than he gave answers to and more questions that other people asked him. My experience has been as a Christian in my own life and as a pastor listening to people who come for counseling and prayer, uh, they have questions, I have questions. And so I'm asking God, how come it was like this? And why don't you do something about that? And, and where were you in this situation? Why did this happen? And now what do I do? And those are the questions that I ask, and those are probably the questions that you ask as well. And here's the disciples in this situation, and they ask a question of Jesus. And they ask this question, listen to his teacher. Do you not care that we are perishing? You see, they are convinced, they're rowing, they're working the sails, they're working the, the rudder, they're bailing the boat, they're doing all this, and what is Jesus doing? He's asleep back there. He's oblivious to all of this. It looks like he doesn't care. If he cared, he'd be rowing. If he cared, he would do something about it. But he's not doing anything, at least nothing that I see. He must not care. He doesn't think I need his help. He's unwilling to help me. He's oblivious and uncaring. A lot of us struggle with that. We struggle with the idea of why does God let bad things happen to people who seem to be innocent and good? And why does he do that? And that's the biggest question that's on the minds of people today why they have trouble putting their faith in Jesus and following Him. Why does God allow these bad things to happen to good people? And there honestly isn't a good answer to that question in every situation. We don't know fully. Sometimes humans are given the freedom to make choices that put them in danger, even though they've been warned not to do that. At other times, though, God allows it, and it happens. Here's a case where the disciples are following Jesus. They're doing his will. They've just had a day of ministry. And Jesus says, he's the one who said, let's go to the other side. You guys take care of it. I'm taking a nap. And they're the ones who realize we're about to drown. And everything we've worked for is going to be lost. We need to intervene. And why doesn't Jesus do something about it? Why doesn't he do something about it? So they wake him up. They wake him up very rudely. You can tell that they're wailing, they're screaming, they're irritated, they're upset. Why don't you do something, teacher? Why don't you come to the rescue? Don't you care that we are perishing? And it says in verse 39 that Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. Now, this is incredible what Jesus does here and how Mark records it. <clears throat> because it says that he wakes up. He wakes up and he sees what's going on and he stands up and he tells the wind and the sea, he speaks to them as if they're animate objects, as if they're beings, not just objects of nature, but that they're living, breathing, animate objects. And he speaks to them in such a way that it's almost like they're demon-possessed. 
Because the terminology that he uses is used in other places when Jesus casts out demons. Now, I'm not saying that demons were behind the winds and the waves. I'm not saying that Satan was trying to destroy Jesus. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that what we've got going on here is something in creation that's in chaos, that's threatening to destroy Jesus and the men inside that boat. This is something interesting to think about, is that the Jewish people, the Israelites, they were not a seafaring culture. They were content to stay on land, and the only people who really ever got into boats and did something on the water were the fishermen in northern Israel on the Sea of Galilee. And so you've got fishermen there. You've got James and John and Peter and some of the other, Andrew and the other disciples. And, and they were familiar with boating and how to handle the boat even in a storm like that. But the Jewish people didn't see the ocean as a friendly place. They wouldn't view the ocean as a place of rest and solitude and relaxation like you do on vacation as you're dreaming about it this summer, for this summer. They wouldn't think of it that way. They saw the ocean as a place that was very frightening, very terrifying, very intimidating. Something, a, a place of chaos and destruction and disorder. It was like a monster that threatened to destroy the the people of God. And God in his creative work brought order to the chaos. And we read in Revelation how the, the monsters of the end times that John had visions of, they come up out of the sea. And the sea is always viewed in Hebrew literature as a place of danger, a place of destruction, a place of violence and chaos. And Jesus in this story is kind of showing that same attitude toward the lake at this time. The Sea of Galilee is not that large. You can climb up on a mountain as Dawn and I did and you can look out and you can see the whole expanse of the lake. There are lakes in our country that are a whole lot larger. But it was a place where sudden storms come and there was that violence and you could be sailing along and everything was smooth and, and uh, because of the, the cold temperatures at the top of Mount Hermon in the north, about 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, 9,000 feet above sea level, the snow-capped mountains there, that cold air descending and would meet with the warm air, the moist air that would be along the, the, the surface of the Sea of Galilee, 700 feet below sea level. You know that there would be all sorts of atmosphere atmospheric meteorological conflict taking place because of the temperature variations. And as those winds would come into the lake and as the temperatures, the warm air and the cold air interacting there, these violent storms would come up. That is well known, well uh, recorded in ancient history. And as these men are out there, they're thinking once again, the sea is going to destroy us. And Jesus, in this moment, tells the wind and the waves, peace, be still. Like he's casting out a demon. Like he's bringing order to chaos. He's exerting control over violence. He's bringing peace when there's total disruption and anarchy. The words that he uses there, one of them has the idea of muzzling a wild dog or a wild animal. 
And in a sense, by commanding the waves and the winds to stop and be at peace, he's clamping a muzzle on the chaos of the storm. And he's bringing peace. That's all he does. He doesn't throw a line. He doesn't say, you guys get your life vests on. He doesn't say, here, let me handle the sail. Let me grab an oar. Let me help bail. He just does what he can do, what he alone has the authority and power to do. He commands the wind to stop and the waves to cease and they stop their beating and they stop their howling and they stop that and it says that there's a great calm. And I want you to notice in your Bible that this story opens up with a great storm, a great violent windstorm, and there's now a great calm. And the difference between those two events, the great storm becomes a great calm, it's because of Jesus' command and His authority. He orders nature to obey Him, and it does. So the wind stops blowing and the waves start settling down and the boat begins to gently bob on the water and the men let down their arms and their mouths are agape and there's a huge sigh because destruction was at their doorstep and now they're safe. And all it took was Jesus giving the command, peace, be still. Now it's Jesus' turn to ask a question. And that's what he does. And he asks this question not just to the disciples, but he asks it to you and me. Do you see it? He said to them in verse 40, Why? Are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? It's actually two questions. Why are you so afraid? Why are you so cowardly? Why are you so why are you so timid here? Why are you afraid? The thing is, Jesus has been doing miracles. He's already cast out demons. He's already fed the multitudes. He's already healed the sick. He's done many things already to indicate his power over the destructive forces in nature and in this world, even over the demonic, angelic realm. He's already proven how powerful and how much authority he has. And he asks them, Why are you timid? Why are you afraid? Well, Jesus, there's a storm. We're sinking and you're sleeping. I think I have every reason, every right to be afraid because everything is lined up against us. But what Jesus is trying to say here, and as he says to you and I, when you look at the storm, you always need to remember that something else is there. It's not just the coronavirus, but there's an almighty God who loves you and cares for you. It's not just that the stock market is tanking with irrational fear. It's there's a God who promises to provide for every need that you have. It's not that your marriage is going through such a storm that it's irreparably broken 
There is a God who heals, who is the peacemaker, who is the reconciler, who can help you be a peacemaker as well. There's a God who welcomes the runaways back home. There's a God who's with you in your moment of great loneliness. There's a God who heals, who mends. There's a God of peace, shalom, wholeness, and healing. And He's your God if you're willing to trust Him. You see, when Jesus is asking the question, He's asking us to probe deeper. Yes, I get why you're afraid. I get why you're afraid. There's a storm. Yes, storm. Yep, nope. I notice that. I'll check it off. There's a storm. I observe that. But have you observed something else? That there's a Savior who's right there with you. As we read in Isaiah chapter 43 earlier in our word, God who's rescued you, there's a God who is with you. A Savior who is with you. That's why you don't have to be afraid. I'm with you. And he's asking them and he's saying, have you still no faith? Have you not gotten faith yet? And he's asking you and I, he's saying, are you using your faith in this situation or are you allowing the storm to so frighten you that you're paralyzed? You can't do anything or you run away. Do you let the storm that you're facing remind you that there's a Savior who rescues, who will see you through. Now, the thing that's interesting is that Jesus didn't start the journey off and say, okay, we're getting in the boat. We're going to sail to the other side. I'm going to take a nap. You guys handle it. Oh, by the way, on the agenda tonight, there's going to be a storm, but I've canceled that so we can have smooth sailing. He doesn't do that. We want him to do that. Lord, get that airplane from New York to Israel. Get us there in one please. Peace, please. Lord, I don't want to get sick. Lord, I don't want to be alone. Lord, I, don't, I want to have the money that I need for the future. Lord, I want to be liked. I want to be welcomed. I want to be loved. Make that all happen. It doesn't guarantee that any of those things will happen. But what he says is, I will be with you. And I'll get you through that storm if it comes. It might not come. Most of the things we worry about and are frightened by never happen. But if they do, they happen in the sovereign plan of God. And just as certain as the sovereign plan of God is the fact that there is a Savior who says, I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I want you to see this, is that Jesus doesn't make the storm never happen. But he shows us that he has ultimate power over the circumstances of our lives, over the forces that are against us, over the things of nature that threaten to harm us. He has authority over all of that. And even if we do go through the valley of the shadow of death, what does he say? 
I will fear no evil for you are with me. And for the child of God, even if we go through the storm and die, what is our future? We're with the Lord. Resurrected. New life. In the new heavens and the new earth. Sometimes the boat does sink. The plane crashes. The monitor flatlines. Those things do happen and God allows them, but those things never happen to us by ourselves. He is with us. Faith is confidence that Jesus is with me and that he can see me through. He can stop the storm. He can get me through the storm. But he is with me. And I can trust him that what he do, what he does, will be best for me and for his glory. Why are you afraid, he says. That's the question he asks. Why are you afraid? What are you scared of right now? What's on your radar? What's screaming out at you? You've got to be scared about this. You lay awake thinking about it. You find your mind just turning and chewing on it. What is it that you're afraid of? Jesus would ask you, why are you afraid? Why are you cowardly in this moment? That's what he asks us. Why am I afraid of this? Is it something I should genuinely be afraid of? Maybe it's irrational. Maybe it's silly, nonsense. Maybe it's just a bunch of hype. Maybe I should genuinely be afraid of it. Can I control it somehow? That's what the disciples were trying to do. There's a story of another guy that falls asleep on a boat in a storm. His name is Jonah. Remember him from the Old Testament, the prophet who ran away? He's asleep on a boat in the middle of a storm. You know why he's asleep on a boat in the middle of a storm? He's trying to control his destiny. God's called him to go preach the gospel to people that he doesn't want to preach to. So he runs in the opposite direction. And he's asleep in the bottom of the boat. And they wake him up and they say, what do we do? What do we do? Have you brought this on us? And he says, yes, it's my fault. And they pick him up and throw him in the water and the storm stops. Jesus is someone greater than Jonah. He's not running away from the storm. He's running into it. He's not running away from God's will. He's running smack dab into the middle of it. And he's willing to die in the storm of God's judgment over our sins. He's willing to bear the guilt and shame, the storm of that humiliation. He's willing to take that upon himself and he endures that storm so that we can experience God's peace. And so when this storm is over and there's now this great calm, the disciples ask a second question. Lord, don't you care that we perish? Now they're not worried about that one. They're not perishing. But it says, who is this man? 
Who is this one? Look at verse 41. They were filled with great fear and they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They traded their fear for another fear. They were afraid of the storm. They were afraid of the wind and the water and they traded for another fear, the fear of Jesus. Who is this one? Who is this man? That he has authority over the wind and he has authority over the waves and he can tell them what to do and they obey. Who is this man? That's the question that we should be asking. Who is Jesus to me? My Lord and Savior, do I trust him? Is he my anchor? Is he my rock? Is he my shepherd? Is he the one that I can rest in no matter how violent the storm of my life may get? Am I willing to trust him? The question I ask about this story is how in the world does Jesus sleep through a storm? Do you wrestle with that? Is he just so exhausted from all the teaching? Teaching's hard work. But why is he sleeping? How can he sleep through a storm? He can sleep through a storm because he's trusting the plan of God, the power of God. He can rest in that. He's not bothered by the storm. The boat's rocking, the wind's howling, the rain is pouring on him. Maybe the water is even coming up and getting him wet as he's laying there. But he has such a peace and such a tranquility because there's such a trust that God's in control, that the waves can't sink us, that the wind can't blow us, that the storm can't kill us and destroy us because I'm resting in God and I'm trusting in Him. And when you trust in God and when we rest in Him, we can sleep even in the storm. Because He gives a peace that's greater than the storm. You have a Savior who's greater than any storm you'll face. You have a Savior who's more powerful than any enemy. More powerful. More loving. More compassionate. You have a Savior who's more present than any danger threatening you and your loved ones. Are you willing to trade your fear for faith? Are you willing to trust Him even when you go through these trials? Trade your fear for faith. Jesus is the Savior who is greater, more powerful, stronger, more present than any storm you'll face ever. Will you trust him? Will you join me in prayer, please? Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us wrestle with this question and just keep asking it when we find ourselves anxious and afraid, that we would just ask the question you ask. Why are we afraid? Are we having any faith yet? 
Lord, help us to take that faith of a mustard seed, that little tiny bit of trust, and help us put it on You and depend on You to see us through. And I ask You, Lord, to give us the grace that we need in the middle of our storms to rely on You, to have the peace we need to persevere. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.